Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God. You've not left us in the dark, but you've made yourself known to us in Jesus. And by your Spirit, you have breathed out and inspired these words that we have in front of us now. And by your Spirit, you speak into our lives today as your word is proclaimed. So we pray that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, so that we can know you better now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hell is a city much like London, a populous and smoky city. There are all sorts of people undone, and there is little or no fun done, small justice shown, and still less pity. I don't know if you recognise that. That is the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, writing in 1819, just under 200 years ago. I think it's hard to agree wholeheartedly with that assessment of London in Leafy Hampstead, but uh, he wasn't thinking of the heath or the architecture. What he was getting at was the way people treat each other. There are all sorts of people undone. There is little or no fun done. Small justice shown and still less pity. No justice, no pity. People come undone. Their lives fall apart. Hell is a place without community. And Shelley would have said there is little of that in London either. So the question is, has anything changed in 200 years? You need people for community, and there are certainly plenty of people. Where's the density of human beings greatest in London? Probably on the tube. What's the first rule if you travel on the tube? If you're new to the UK or to London, you might not quite have figured this out yet, but it won't take long. You may be compressed with a hundred other people into a tiny space with no sense of personal space, but you may not talk to people that you don't know. And furthermore, you may not make eye contact. It is proximity, but not intimacy. It is crowdedness, but not relationship. It's locality, but not community. The same goes, if we think about it, for our relationships with our neighbours much of the time. Do we know our neighbours? And more than that, even if we're willing to get to know them, do our neighbours want to be known? London today is a city of every tribe, race, tongue, nation, young and old, rich and poor, weak and strong, the world in microcosm. There's a lot of talk about community in in our culture today, and yet for, for many Londoners at least, that still means a community of people who are basically rather like them. People with the same interests, the same jobs, the same hobbies, the same backgrounds. So where then does church fit into all this talk about community? This letter to the Ephesians was written to encourage the Ephesian Christians who were in danger of being overawed by the dominant culture of paganism in their city with the great temple of Artemis to Diana, which sort of dominated the whole life of that city. And they were tempted to feel as Christians entirely, that they felt entirely irrelevant to what was going on around them. 
And Paul writes to them to say, God has a plan. And actually, it's not a plan about you Christians first and foremost. You're not at the centre of this, actually. It's way bigger than that. It's a plan at the end of time to unite everything under Jesus. That is where history is heading. So we've been seeing in in these uh, first couple of chapters of Ephesians over the last few weeks, we've been seeing the world is God-centred. It's not about you and me. And God has a plan which is Jesus-centred. And the extraordinary thing we've begun to see over the last few weeks is that the way God is choosing to work in the world here and now is church-centred. Being a Christian isn't just me and God and you and God having a one-to-one for eternity. It's about me and you finding our place in his community, which is at the centre of how he is working out his plan for the world. And we say, really? Can, it, can that really be true? Can it be really the case that church, you know, church like this with a, you know, with a balcony falling down and and, and you know, loads of people walking past in the street today won't even give us a second look. He'd really be saying this has some kind of actual significance in God's plan for the world, can you? Well, these verses in Ephesians that we have in front of us on page 1174, if you want to turn back to it, if you, if you have it in front of you, these verses remind us the privilege being part of God's community, both this community right here at St. John's and the kind of universal community of the church worldwide and in heaven. If we're part of this community that Paul speaks about, then we need to see afresh the wonder of that. And if we're not part of it, if we're not trusting in Jesus, we need to see what Paul says we're missing out on. So there's three things to see in these verses. You can see Um, on the handout, first of all, that without Christ, we were excluded. Without Christ, excluded. Verses 11 to 13. What, What we need to understand, first of all, according to Paul, is that naturally God's people, his community, is not a place where we belong. That's certainly the case if we are Gentiles, non Jews. Can you see that in verse 11? He's saying, remember, you Gentiles, you were uncircumcised. That meant you did not belong to the people of God. And basically, you couldn't belong. Well, you could become a proselyte. You could become a kind of convert. And the Old Testament reading we heard from Isaiah points forwards. There was always that sense that God's people were meant to be a blessing to the world, to the nations. That was always where things were heading. But to actually become part of God's people there and then before Jesus came, it wasn't easy, it wasn't expected, it wasn't common, and it didn't put you on an absolutely equal footing with those born into God's people. Now naturally, if we are Gentiles, therefore God's people is not somewhere we belong. But is that how we think of ourselves? One thing I've noticed with small children is that there's often some kind of toy in the house that uh, never gets played with for, you know, for weeks and months on end by either child. In our case, we have two children. And then one day, one of them finds the toy and picks it up and starts playing with it, and suddenly the other one develops a massive interest in playing with this particular 
toy, an interest hitherto unknown, hitherto undeclared. But now, this is the only toy that matters. They too must have it right here, right now. It has suddenly acquired a value that it never had before. And the thing is, that value only seems to be acknowledged when you're told that you can't have it. And there is a little sense here of Paul wanting to convince his readers that the thing you take for granted, maybe, you know, being part of the church, you need to realise how valuable that is. Because you're just taking it for granted, he's saying. You don't realise that naturally you don't belong there at all. So verse 12, well, you talk about trusting in Christ, he says, but, well, naturally you were separate from Christ. Well, he was a Jew, wasn't he? He came as the Jewish Messiah. You you Gentiles, you're not naturally part of that. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. In, In other words, the way God began to work out his plan in the Old Testament involved choosing a particular people to whom he made promises, with whom he made a covenant, through whom he would bless the world and ultimately save it. And as much as you might want to be involved in God's plans, Paul is saying, well, actually, naturally, you're not. This is how he chose to work out his salvation plan. He doesn't ask for volunteers. He doesn't say, hands up, who wants to join my plan to save the world? He chooses a people and he gets on with the plan. And so your situation, he says, was hopeless. You were without hope because you've got no way into God's people. But God's people is the way God has chosen to save the world. You're without hope and you're without God, he says. The word there literally, if you look, <clears throat> the word about for being without God is atheist. You were atheists. You know that thing when atheists say to Christians, you know, there's there's this thing that you sometimes see on the internet. They say, you and I, actually, we're both atheists, really. It's just that we uh, atheists have one fewer God than you Christians. You heard that? In other words, you know, there are plenty of gods in the world that you Christians don't believe in. The gods of ancient Greece and Rome, pagan gods, you know, you're, you're, you are atheists in regard to them, aren't you? Well, why not go one further like us atheists and complete the set? But of course, the, the one god that Christians do believe in is entirely different from all the other gods. Because he's a god who has revealed himself and revealed his plan in history. He started with a people from whom came their saviour, Jesus Christ. He is a God then who saves. He's a God who brings hope. A God whose answer to the world's problems is not, here is a list of the things you must do, which is what the the, the other gods or whatever it is that people believe in end up saying. It always comes down to, here's a bunch of stuff you need to do in order to be saved. No, that's not how the Christian God works. He says, here is what I have done for you. Here is the gift of salvation that I give to you in my son. And just then when we might be beginning to think, well, that sounds like the kind of God I want to know. I'm up for that kind of God. Well, don't miss what Paul is saying. He's saying, naturally, unless you were born a Jew, actually, you had no access to this God and no access to his people. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, 
We heard how, naturally, we are dead in our sin, we are enslaved, we are condemned. And in one sense, that was explaining the vertical problem that we face between us and God, as it were. But you see, Paul is saying there's another problem we may not have thought of. It's not just that there's a problem between us and God, there's a kind of horizontal problem. That we are cut off from access to the people that God is using to save the world. And we need to understand this if we are to understand how extraordinary the gospel is. The good news about Jesus. Because which gets a, bitter par- uh, which gets, which gets a bigger party? The person who is mildly pleased that they took some paracetamol and their headache went away. Or the person celebrating being five years cancer-free after life-saving surgery and chemotherapy. It's obvious, isn't it? The more serious the problem, the greater the celebration. And that's why Paul needs to ram these things home to us and point out why it is that the gospel is so great, so that, we, so that we see the glory of what God has given us in Christ. That's why we confess our sin week on week, because we're remembering how extraordinary it is that he has forgiven us. We're remembering the, the size of his love. And so having understood that that problem is even greater than we might have thought, we need to hear verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You were cut off in more ways than you could imagine, but in Christ you can be brought near. Well, how can that be then? That sounds extraordinary. Well, that takes us to the second point. Through Christ we are reconciled. Verses 14 to 18. Reconciliation. He talks about it's a kind of double reconciliation. Because, again, we normally think of the problem between, about reconciliation being, I need to be reconciled to God, and that's there in verse 16, if you look. But actually, the focus in these verses is not just on that, but on how being reconciled to God in Christ reconciles us to one another. He is our peace, verse 14. <clears throat> he has made the two one. The two, what's the two? The two are Jews and Gentiles, brought together with the dividing wall of hostility broken down. Now, these verses are are fairly dense, aren't they? Verses 14 to 18. But just uh, look at what that dividing wall is. It's the law. Having the law of Moses was one of the distinguishing features of Old Testament Israel. It's how you knew who was in the people of God and who was out. Now, what's this like? Well, you know, once or twice, just once or twice, I've had the opportunity to sit down at a dinner where there's kind of seven wine glasses and four sets of knives and forks and spoons. And uh, there's that moment of panic where you wonder, you know, how, how, which one am I supposed to use first? You know, what order? What do I, do I use? Is that my plate or is that my plate? I, you know, I don't want to get it wrong. And you, f- and you feel like an outsider, or at least I do in that kind of situation. And you watch to see what everyone else is doing, but it's hard to keep up and copy them exactly. And then, you know, there's these obscure rules you might have heard of. You know, the port is meant to keep moving to the left around the table. But if for some reason it stops moving, you don't just say something obvious like, uh, would you mind passing the port? You're supposed to say, apparently... Do you know the Bishop of Norwich? 
And if, that, if that's meant with kind of blank stares, as I imagine it might well be in, in the wrong circles, it, you follow it up with, is your passport in order? And then they might get the hint to pass the port. Now, let me reassure you that this is not daily life in the parsonage. <laughs> but you see, those kind of customs, they have the function of kind of showing who is in and who is out. Do you see? And if you don't know the customs in that kind of context, well, you feel like an outsider. So the law of Israel had a whole, kind of, whole range of functions in Old Testament Israel to do with revealing the character of God. It was showing Israel how to live as the redeemed people of God. It was laying down a standard of what a perfect Israel, Israelite life looked like. But it also had this function of marking out who the people of God are. They are the ones who have the law. They are the ones who keep the law. And you Gentiles... You are definitely not that. So you Gentiles are like Tarzan coming back home to England and sitting at the table with his aristocratic relatives and picking up the soup bowl in both hands and drinking from it noisily. You know, you're not one of us, is the implication. But now, verse 15, that function of the law has come to an end. It's been abolished in Christ's flesh. And the way he did that was first by keeping the law perfectly in his life. He was the model Israelite. He did everything the law prescribed. He never sinned. And then having lived that life, he died and he took the penalty for sin that the law prescribed, even though he was innocent. He took that penalty on himself. And so now that Jesus has come, there's no need for this law anymore to mark out who the people of God are. Because the one that the law was pointing to has come. And so a new people of God has been created out of these two groups that were formerly hostile to one another. A new people that, as we've seen before, if you've been here in Ephesians, it's a scale model of where the whole of history is heading. Remember, chapter 1, verse 10, to unite everything under one head. To unite even these two groups who could have nothing to do with each other because the law that divided them now united in Christ. A new people marked not by law keeping but by faith in Jesus. Verse 18. <clears throat> Through Jesus we both have access to the Father by one spirit. It's as if you've gone, up, gone to line up with the crowds at the royal wedding, like the one we had a few months ago. You know, you're just hoping to get a glimpse of the happy couple as they pass by in their carriage, and you're there in the crowd beforehand, waiting and waiting, and suddenly a man in a dark suit and dark glasses with an earpiece taps you on the shoulder and says, you are summoned, come with me. And he takes you into the castle, and he takes you to the wedding reception, and he puts you on the top table next to the queen. He said, don't be ridiculous, you know, that would never happen. And I'm sure that's right when it comes to a royal wedding. If royal weddings don't float your boat, then think of going backstage with your favourite band or getting into your team's dressing room at the match. You know, it just yeah, it doesn't happen, does it, to the random person. But in Christ, that is exactly what has happened, and a million times more. That is what Paul is saying. Do you see? It's not merely the queen that you get to meet for an hour. It is the God of the universe, and you get free access to him for eternity. 
And in these verses, Paul wants to spell out the implications of that for how we relate to one another as members of this new community who all approach God on the same terms. The point is a basic one. There is no room for hostility within the people of God, for one-upmanship, for pride between God's people when we all approach God on the same terms. That's the point, isn't it? In Christ, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, therefore. And more than that, actually, who cares if you're a judge or a road sweeper? Who cares if the world thinks you're important or insignificant when you both have access to the Father? Neither of you deserve this. That's the point, isn't it? Whoever you are, we come to God now on the same terms. And that then is why church ought to be the place where you find every kind of person from every kind of background. It ought to be the kind of place where people look and they say, what are you guys doing hanging out together? Why is a CEO chatting over coffee with a student nurse? Why is a refugee from South Sudan hanging out with a Spanish banker? How are these people relating to each other as equals? Well, because each has realised that it is only through Christ that they are reconciled to God. They each need Christ as much as the other, and so they are united around him. There's no first class, no second class, no inner circle. If you trust in Christ, you belong. That is what Paul is saying. Is that true here? Let's make sure it is. Paul then develops that in the final verses. In Christ, a new community, verses 19 to 22. What what, what are we now? No longer the foreigners and aliens that we discovered we were in verses 11 to 13. Now, fellow citizens and members of God's household. Think about that word citizen. For for them, it would have made them think of the prized status of being a Roman citizen. These are the full rights of belonging. You know, no second class. It's It's not just some kind of leave to remain in God's people, as it were. It is full works citizenship. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, accept it equally. And there are a couple of pictures here of what this community looks like. Verse 19, it's a household, it's a family. We just welcomed another member this morning, haven't we, to this family. We've given him the outward badge of membership, of belonging to this family. And that's what he says, the household, the family. And then then, uh, the image changes to one of a building. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And that's not a physical building that he's talking about, is it? It's the people founded on the preaching of the gospel through the apostles' preaching, through the preaching today. It's helpful to remember that, isn't it? Sometimes I'm, if I'm feeling a bit cheeky and maybe I'm working in the office during the week and someone comes to the door and they say, you know, would it, would it be okay if I had a look at the church? I might say in response, well, I'm really sorry, but the church isn't here today. You'll have to come back on Sunday and then you can meet them then. Because as beautiful as a building like this is, 
with its falling down balcony and everything else. Yet the, the church is we, the people. And more than that, the church is how God is fulfilling his plans on earth. The temple was where God dwelt in the the Old Testament, isn't it? If you wanted to be close to God, that's where you had to go. And now Paul is saying, if you want to kind of know where heaven is meeting earth, if you want to see God's plan in miniature, his plan to unite all people under one head, to unite people under Jesus, if you want to see that in action, look at the church. Being a member of this family, Paul is saying, is a complete privilege. Do you see that? So, do Christians have to go to church? People sometimes ask. Well, you don't have to go to church. You get to be the church. Do you see? People sometimes talk about a mindset change that's helpful in this area. We need to change our mindset from a consumer approach to church to a kind of identity approach. Because in, in, in consumer church, well, church is a dispenser of religious goods and services. So, you know, you come to church to be fed, to have your needs met through programs, through groups, to have professionals teach you and your children about God. And, and the approach then is a kind of, well, what's in it for me? You know, is it, is it meeting my individual needs? And if I don't find it here, I'll find it somewhere else. Or, what, you know, however it works. But actually, that, that isn't really how Paul has described the church here, because it's not something we do, but it is something that we are. It is our identity. We are a body of people who are sent on a mission who gather in community for worship and encouragement and teaching and who then scatter to influence the world around us. There's a little book called How to Walk into Church by Tony Payne, and we'll have a few copies at the weekend away next week. And he says this, which gets right to the heart of what Paul is talking about. He says, If you think that church is a necessary but slightly tedious chore in which you have very little part to play apart from getting some spiritual sustenance for yourself, then your commitment to being there is likely to be wobbly at best. You'll get there when you can. You'll feel a slight pang of guilt when you don't, but certainly not enough of a pang to prevent you from missing it reasonably often, especially when there's something more pressing or attractive to do. Of course, there are holidays and sickness, and that accounts for some of the weeks that we miss. But it's strange how quickly the absent weeks mount up. Family event, children's sport, tiring week, bad weather, a weekend away, looking after visiting relatives, a late Saturday night, work deadlines, hitting stop instead of snooze on the alarm, and sometimes just couldn't be bothered laziness. In reality, what really stops many of us from turning up more frequently to church is a failure to grasp just how vital the ministry of turning up actually is. One of the acts of love and encouragement we can all engage in is the powerful encouragement of just being there. Because every time I walk into church, I'm wearing a metaphorical t-shirt that says, God is important to me and you are important to me. And on the back it says, and that's why I wouldn't dream of missing this. Well, if hell is a city much like London, rejoice that heaven is a community much like Jesus. And our job now is to be a foretaste of that.
Let's commit ourselves to being that as we pray. Father God, this is an extraordinary vision of what you call your people to be. It is not what we deserve, but in Christ it is who we are when we're trusting in Jesus. We pray that we would be able to reflect for ourselves on our own church right here, on the communities we're involved in over London and beyond. Father, we pray that you would help us to see that there is no division among your people. That we would form this community that is in Jesus' image. And be a foretaste of what you offer in heaven to a watching world so that they join it too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.